Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. One of the biggest problems facing legacy banking organizations today is leveraging data and advanced analytics to drive digital transformation, creating hyper-personalized experiences, supporting innovation culture, and solving customer challenges with appropriate technology. One organization that has emerged as a data-centric leader is TD Bank. Headquartered in Toronto, Canada, TD Bank is a top 10 banking organization with 85,000 employees and more than 26 million consumers. Brand itself is America's most convenient bank, TD has quickly responded to the needs of the digital consumer. We are very fortunate today to have John Thomas, Executive Vice President and Head of Global Innovation at TD Bank on the show. John's discussed the recent moves by TD Bank and how a data-driven culture positions this legacy financial institution to be a major force in the banking industry well into the future. So welcome to the show, John. I'm, I'm really happy to have you on the show today, not only because you're one of the foremost authorities on digital banking transformation and innovation, but because I admire TD Bank both in Canada and the U.S. since I worked in Canada more than 20 years ago. As I, I mentioned to you in some prep conversation, you know, I, I spent three days a week for five years up in Canada working on behalf of the CIBC and know a lot of people from TD Bank as well. So, John, while your title says you're the head of global innovation at TD Bank, you also have the responsibility for data and insight strategy, personalization, customer retention, and strategic business architecture of the bank. Is it fair to say that data analytics is really at the core of almost everything you do at TD? Uh, thanks for having me today. And it is fair to say that. And I would say it's not just at the core of digital transformation, but it's really a core piece of how we think about interaction management transformation, marketing transformation, distribution transformation. So it's enabling a whole set of changes at TD. We believe at the core that all experiences should be personalized, connected experiences, and data is what enables that personalization. So it's interesting because while financial institutions talk about wanting to build a better data infrastructure and better customer experiences, our recent research in the Digital Bank Report found that less than 25% of financial institutions internationally have the ability to use data to do a simple interaction such as, what's the next best product for me to offer? So what has TD done to improve the personalization of experiences? Yeah, I'd actually be surprised if it's as high as 25%, uh, Jim, in the industry. So our U.S. bank, TD Bank, really did four things uh, to make this come to life. The first thing we did is we built a human-level infograph uh, outside of our big data architecture. And there's two key pieces to that. It's human-level. We didn't build a customer 360 or an account-level or relationship-level. So the, if you think about this, Jim, as a giant spreadsheet, you're a row, I'm a row, everybody in our trading area in the U.S. is a row, and I call it a belly-button database, right? Because it the atomic level is a human being. The second thing we did then is we put everything we could into that infograph. And we didn't sort of fight that fight of trying to normalize a bunch of the tech feeds, right? Because it takes a long time. It's very expensive. Then the third thing we did is once we got all the information there, we built a human-level insights engine. And then the fourth thing to make this come to life was we used those insights, sort of a one TD view, as it were, 
everywhere. We use it for marketing, use it for digital, we use it for push notification, SMS text, banner ads. We actually have this integrated into 27 different endpoints at TD. And included in that is our branch and store network because we think insights and personalization shouldn't just be used from remote channels or marketing, but it should be used in those human interaction channels as well. So many firms have a challenge because they have multiple silos of data within the organization. And then when they try to bring them together to build your insight engine, as you refer to it, they don't deploy the insights across the organization to all customer-facing employees. And we find that this does two things. Number one, it makes it so every touch point the consumer has has a different view of what the relationship is. But just as importantly, and I wrote about it this last week in the financial brand, is you have a situation where employees don't feel part of the transformation process, which tends to make them threatened for loss of job and loss of actually being able to be engaged in what they do every day, which is interacting with the consumers. How did you address this at TD? Yeah, and I really love, Jim, sort of the second part of what you just said, right? Like, how do you make this real and enabling and comfortable for the employees, right, that deal with customers? So, you know, I talk a lot about when, when you think about data and architecture and analytics at a bank, you know, stop thinking about your conference room and start thinking about these chats with customers, right? And, and sort of build your whole strategy and your tech around that. So there's a couple of things to your question, like how do you actually do this? A lot of it's what you don't do, Jim. First thing, don't move the data, right? So if you have some kind of data and analytics engine, don't try to move the data to the front line for a couple of reasons. One, that's really expensive. And secondly, it's a bit risky sometimes to do that. Then the natural conclusion behind that is, so I'll move the insight to my front line, right? I'll move it to those customer-facing employees. No, I, I wouldn't do that for the simple reason that a lot of those employees, if I gave them an insight, you know, Jim was thinking about this or did this yesterday, that employee might not know what to do with that insight. And a lot of our channel architecture and banking can't really handle those insights. So the way you make this real is you just move the recommendation because those employees and that channel architecture can handle the recommendation. So what we've seen on this journey, in addition to nice business lifts, our seller and servicer employee confidence has gone way up because we're giving them something that's very consumable in how they do their job. You're giving them the answer. Yeah. You're not giving them the data and trying to make everybody a data analyst. Exactly. You're actually giving them the tool that says, this is what you should be talking to the consumer about. Yeah. That simple thing, Jim, made a profound difference on our investment profile, on our results, on receptivity across channels. It's so simple, but so powerful. So in doing that, and you look at these answers, so it said, is that, do you build this around products? In other words, do you come to them with this is the product you'd be talking about? Or are you really looking at deeper solutions such as this person could use their money better if they, you know, they, they have a balance that's too high in their checking account. They should move some of this to a savings account. How do you balance the issue of product needs as well as consumer needs, which are usually very different? Yeah. So the, the core, it's actually a great question because we've seen a lot of companies 
try to take like marketing and product propensity routines and sort of cram them in other channels, that might not really resonate with a customer. Like that might not be relevant and contextual in a given interaction. So the way we think about that is across a couple of dimensions. And we actually have a waterfall, so to speak, in the way we do personalization. So we think about triggers. In other words, you know, Jim, you might be right for a certain product or a certain product might be right for you, but there's something happening in your life in the last 24 or 48 hours is probably trumping sort of how you're making decisions today. Like we'll use that as a trigger. Sometimes, you know, those don't exist and you're really thinking about product propensity, right? That's okay in certain contexts. But other times, it might much more be about a service that can help you, not a product sale, but some some capability. You know, we certainly saw that through the pandemic without question across the industry. And then sometimes it might be about advice, right? I'm not going to sell you anything, but is there something I can sort of help you with? Not like a transaction, but is there some life event or, or, or something going on? with Jim that I can just help you with today. Let's talk about it. It spans the gamut beyond product. So so given that, and let me give you a couple of scenarios. For instance, in my personal banking relationship, my financial institution reached out to me and people who listen to the show have heard this story many times, but reached out to me and asked me, what do you want your balance level to be for us to warn you that the balance is low? Well, I've had the relationship for 15 years now. I get highly frustrated, mind you, I have a little bit of a biased viewpoint, that somebody would ask me that because my balance level on the second of the month is different than what I want it to be on the 13th. And the balance level on the 22nd is very different than right before tuition is due on the 28th. Do you try to avoid these kind of misses, what I'm going to call a miss, or, or in my business account? My business account, they never paid attention to the way that money was coming in and flowing out, but now it's all going in and out via PayPal. And so what does PayPal do? They come to me and say, by the way, you may not need this, but if you need a a bridge line of credit, we can give it to you on a pre-approved basis on any term you want. It's already taken care of for you. So when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, why would I go to my traditional financial institution where the approval process and loan process may take a number of days when, yeah, I may pay a little bit more for PayPal, but if I'm only looking at a bridge line, I'm only looking for a short-term loan anyway. How do you help to think on behalf of the consumer, or as I call it, the financial concierge. Yeah, what we're trying to resist is sort of what you alluded to in the question there, Jim, which is sort of these peanut butter sort of average solutions for people, because there's nothing about our lives that's average, right? And to your point, like the second of the month, the 15th of the month, and the 28th of the month, maybe three really different realities from my household, but, but it might be very different for your household. You know, we recently actually launched a service in TD Canada that actually deals with this. So, you know, we we bought an AI company, Layer 6 is our AI company. And we're using that intelligence layer to predict and understand the dynamic you just described, which is rather than say, hey, customer, tell me when to notify you when you're below 1,000 versus 5,000 versus... Money moves in and out of people's accounts very, very differently. And we're actually treating them as individuals and sort of understanding historically how money moves in and out of a specific account. And then we personalize essentially cash flow forecasting and notifications based on your transaction history versus the average customer's transaction history. 
TD Bank acquired Commerce Bank up in Maine a number of years ago. But one thing that Commerce Bank was known for, and TD Bank continued, was the highly, highly personalized engagement experience, ranging from handing out pens to being involved in every community event to the dog bones and biscuits at the auto teller. And I used to kid people from TD Bank saying, okay, as we move to digital, how do you really provide the human touch that you're doing so well in a physical environment to a digital one? And, and you just brought up the pandemic. How have you as an organization really hoped to translate what you were known for in a physical sense to a digital sense? TD's always been the human bank, as you said. And, and just like we do on our human interaction channels, Jim, in our digital capabilities, we're always looking for ways to sort of meet that evolving human need, right? Like the people call customer need. We think of it more as like a human need. So while many of our customers will always come to us to see us face to face, right? More and more and more of them interact with us partially through digital or maybe even only through digital. So we see our numbers going up like everybody else, like online's way up, mobile's up 14% last year. And it's a combination of little things and big things, Jim. Like how do you humanize digital? Little things like, you know, so rather than like the big shiny new technical capability, how do you unlock a lost card? How do you order a new card and pick it up in a pandemic? How do you reset your password? Because I didn't use mobile that much pre-pandemic, but you know, it's, it's my preferred connection maybe into the bank during the pandemic. And then there's big things too, right? Like our virtual queue technology, which is a combination of digital and sort of physical interaction with TD. You know, in the US, we've had over 2.7 million customer check-ins through the pandemic by using your phone literally in our parking lot and sort of making sure that you're safe and you know when sort of to come into the lobby and when it's safe. We launched a virtual assistant chatbot back in April because of what was happening. Almost 3 million requests came through that. We've seen customers use things like mobile check deposit. Yeah, that's up 25% year over year. But back to the question of, but how do you make it human? Like during the pandemic, people started using those digital services in very different ways than they did pre-pandemic. So we had to rethink how we delivered, you know, something as simple as maybe you walked a paycheck into one of our stores every other Friday because it was a big deposit, but you were doing little birthday gifts and stuff through our mobile app. Now that big deposit, you want to do it through the mobile app. Like we had to change all of our tolerances, for example. Exactly. Because, yeah. Because humans change their behavior. So there's a lot of examples of how we do that. So many organizations stumble at the data analytics for a number of reasons. One is they say legacy technology or the silos, which there's a lot of organizations that can do workarounds around that. But another thing that really gets in the way is the whole issue of the investment level needed. And so a lot of organizations hold back because they consider it a cost center. How have you found that the integration of data, AI, technology has worked towards reducing costs or improving business outcomes where the investment actually was, was more of an investment than a cost center? There's two ideas in that question, right? One is how do you manage the investment profile? And then secondly, how do you get business returns, whether it's cost reduction or sort of revenue growth? Because it is daunting. Most financial institutions look at 
sort of this data channel interaction tech integration is very, very scary and very expensive. You know, a couple of thoughts. One, don't try to do this out of your big data architecture, right? It serves a different purpose. It makes your conference room and your boardroom smart. It does reporting and informs financial decisions. But when you're dealing with your customers, have a fast data architecture. From an investment perspective, Jim, those are a lot cheaper to build. Secondly, don't build everything in-house like you used to, right? Like There's the biggest one I keep on trying to tell people. It makes it so it's scalable. If you're a small organization, you can do it. If you're a big organization, you can do it. You're right. Yeah. Use the tech that's available. You know, use the right third parties the right way. And then the other thing I would say on the investment side is don't build a series of channel level engines and then try to integrate it all like down the road, right? Because you kind of never get to the end of that journey and it's a very expensive, time-consuming journey. That's how we're going to keep our investment profiling. How do we get business outcomes? Create once, use everywhere, right? That's the first way to get the business outcome, right? And by the way, you know, if you and I were just sitting here chatting, you'd want me to understand you as a human being, sort of regardless of the nature of the conversation. And then if we picked up tomorrow and talked some more, you'd want me to understand you. So I got to use that same level of understanding everywhere and drive business outcomes from one sort of decision center uh, across everything. Second is understand that the capabilities of the channel. I talked earlier about how to get to this to human assisted front lines. Right? You really have to think about that last mile. I think too many people in this space think about the technical integration and they forget where it gets real, right? Yep. Yep. And then the last thing, and I said it before, is solve for the customer chat. Don't solve for the conference room. And when you do that, what you'll find is your investments really impact millions of interactions as opposed to a handful of meetings. It's that simple. Boy, I'll tell you what, that could not be more profound because I say it that stop looking at this as being a way to make better reports. You need to make it so it makes better experiences. And it's the deployment factor. You keep on referencing it that really, if, if we just held all this knowledge and just became smarter in the boardroom, that gives us a lot of good tools. It doesn't do a thing for the consumer. You know, I kid about the fact my uh, big bank example of the balance I hold. I know they know so much about me. I know they know what my mortgage payment date is, where I make my mortgage payment to, what the rate is. They know all the different components of my life, but they don't show that. And it's the deployment of that information. And, you know, one of the things that's foundational to this, we, we talked about this a little bit before the call, was that one of the major challenges we see across the industry is that we're dealing mostly with legacy financial institutions that are run by many times gentlemen, but leaders that have been in the bank for years, for decades. And they're surrounded by other leaders that have been involved in banking for decades. Culture and leadership becomes a very important component. How is that adjusted? How is that worked at TD Bank? It's, there's nothing that's not legacy in a 165-year-old financial institution, but how did leadership really take the role upon giving support to moving to a digital platform, building better customer experience, which certainly takes an investment front end. What is different about TD in that respect? That's a question that's actually very personal to me, Jim, because I had spent years in banking and, and then I left the industry and I, I thought I'd left it forever. And, and I went you know, in different technical pursuits 
And when I was considering coming back in, I had two personal non-negotiables. One was customer obsession, and the second was culture. So I was screening if I was going to come back to a bank. It had to be a bank with a really healthy culture. Look, at TD, we have a lot of the same challenges you reference, right, at other banks. Never enough time. There's never enough money. It feels like our infrastructure or our decisions are Jurassic, you know, oh, this digital stuff feels too abstract. I'm not sure what the ROI is of digital engagement, all those challenges. Yeah. But I would say at TD, sort of culture was everything in, in overcoming those. And that's not an overstatement. First, we really are a customer-obsessed company, and it's in the DNA in both Canada and our U.S. operations, as well as the predecessor companies. It was in the DNA of the predecessor companies. So that when we put a customer problem on the table at TD, people mobilize. And that's culture. The second thing is our cultural framework actually has a concept that the I in innovation is me. In other words, innovation isn't that central group under John over there. Innovation is all of us. And that goes a long way in getting over some of the obstacles you referenced. And then the last is we also have in our culture this concept that we have to transform and innovate on the customer's timeline, not ours. Oh, yeah. How different is that, right, at a bank? So, you know, that really came to life, Jim, through the pandemic when, and, and I think it's a time where, where TD actually stood very tall and it was our culture that free decor, we're in it together. It's really urgent. Customers are suffering. Don't talk about it. Do it now. And there was a lot of examples over the last year at our company. And it was, it was the culture that was there beforehand that enabled it. Well, this seems to be a good place to take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of the podcast. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about innovation at TD Bank, which really, when you look at John's title as the EVP of Global Innovation, that, that is probably something we should make sure we cover. So we'll be right back. Is your organization trying to embrace digital banking transformation in 2021? Are you trying to elevate the customer experience? Figure out what technology you want to implement to improve the customer journey. Look at data analytics to really better understand and personalize the customer experience. And you're trying to make it so that more of your employees can buy into and be part of your digital banking transformation? If this sounds like you, I ask you to reimagine banking with our newest podcast sponsor, Microsoft. They give you the opportunity to unlock new opportunities at speed throughout innovative business models, deliver differentiated customer experiences across channels, products, and services, and redefine new ways of banking. Microsoft and its partner ecosystem help banks to achieve differentiation through sustainable growth, streamlining core systems, reducing cost and risk, and delighting customers and employees. If you're in the midst of a journey trying to figure out what to do next, maybe trying to find out what other organizations are doing to lift up their experience level, I really encourage you to look at Microsoft. For more information, visit Microsoft.com slash financial services. Welcome back. I am joined today by John Thomas, the EVP of Global Innovation at TD Bank. John and I have been discussing the digital transformation journey at TD Bank and the importance of data, 
customer insight, and personalization as a competitive weapon for the future. We're now going to dig a little bit more into innovation and the innovation process at TD. So, you know, as I mentioned, John, besides managing the many components of the customer experience at TD, you're also in charge of innovation on a global basis. What are some of the most impactful innovations you've spearheaded that are unique to TD Bank? You know, Jim, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the I in innovation is me. That's like one of the phrases we use at TD. And the me isn't John Thomas, right? The me is 90,000 people at the company. And I think over the last year in particular, really interesting to watch how innovation is sort of reformulated during the pandemic. Everything from curbside pickup in banking, right? A, a brand new concept, right? That didn't exist a year ago. The drive-through model and the evolution of drive-through from a safety and, and sort of soundness perspective. And we brought innovations in that model, Jim, like when we had disruption in our branch and store network and we had to help customers through drive-through and the lobbies were closed, we built a tool that as they were pulling out of the drive-through, we could send them a personalized SMS text message to their phone on whatever assistance they needed or like a how-to video on what we just talked about in the drive-through. But there were a lot of other innovations recently too. Data and AI-driven push notifications in a time of chaos and change were very important to our customers. We stood up so many different simple apps and digital forms, uh, everything from sort of government assistance programs to sort of loan help. You know, we've got TD for Me, which is a personalized notification service and digital TD My Spend, which helps manage people's day-to-day spending. And, and they're like pretty important issue over the last year. But we also made some innovative infrastructure investments over the last couple of years, Jim, that served us very well through this time. If I think about the paywall protection program in the U.S. and the volumes we saw in the first wave of that as an industry, we had made some loan processing platform innovations prior to that that really helped us through that. If I think about our direct investing business and our our wealth group, you know, very digital savvy group. And then as the cap markets blew up and trading, you know, we were Johnny on the spot. We were ready. And then uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, we we have an AI company and sort of these new cash balance forecasting tools. The list goes on and on in terms of innovations. That's just the last couple of quarters at TD. There are many more and there'll be many more coming. At a legacy finance institution that is all built around product, how do you look at innovation or how do you take the innovation process and make it so your teams, every employee at the bank, start looking at from a customer need perspective as opposed to a product perspective? How do you stop people from continually saying, how do we improve the checking account to saying, geez, how do we help consumers meet their obligations on a rent or a mortgage basis during a pandemic? How do you change the whole perspective of how innovation is handled? I've talked about this before across the industry. I think what we see in banks a lot of times is an innovation motion that is, I'll call it solution forward, idea forward, or tech forward. In other words, I've got an idea, let me go figure out where I can deploy it. Or, oh, that blockchain technology, that's really cool. Like, what do we do with it, right? Or, you know, I assembled some solution, now I got to go look for a couple of problems to apply it to. And and by the way, what happens at the end of those innovation motions? You sort of ideate, you build, and then you turn to your marketing group and you go, find me buyers, right? I really prefer a customer backwards innovation motion. TD's customer obsession sort of was already there where you obsess about a given customer problem 
You use research not to validate your idea. You use research to understand the problem and design the solution. And then at the end of that process, you know exactly who you're going to deliver that to. Because on day one of the innovation cycle, you knew what you were trying to solve as opposed to this old motion in banking. On day one, you just have an idea and you end up trying to figure out who I can sell sort of this new form of dog food to, so to speak. I have found, Jim, in my career, that that customer backwards innovation motion scales infinitely more than an idea forward motion. Well, it also, it proves to the consumer that you're looking out for them as opposed to trying to sell stuff, which is a a big deal. You know, from an innovation perspective now in the digital world we're in, how important is moving towards greater speed and simplicity as it relates to the experience. And how do you innovate towards that, towards getting rid of stuff that has encumbered our industry for decades? It's actually going to be part of the formula. It's been part of the formula, but I don't think banks really got it, you know, for a while. Banking is generally understanding that's a critical part of the formula. I think that, you know, your question, like, how do you do that? How you don't do it is say, well, it's a rig game because I'm working on transactional systems that are big and old, or it's a rig game to regulate. Like you can't go there, right? You have to sort of embrace this concept that if I have an, an infrastructure or a tech problem or, or whatever problem, I have to abstract that to the background. I have to put something in the foreground that wholly solves you know, a customer's problem or, or enables whatever they're, they're trying to do. So, and I think, you know, this concept of abstraction, and I'm not talking just about like API layers and yada, yada. I'm, I'm talking about this concept of draw a box around the thing you can't change and then layer that box with what you can change and really fundamentally drive your innovation motion as a company around that concept as opposed to, well, I got to do alpha to omega in this innovation. Let me bring 40 people in the room, 38 of which are going to tell me I can't change the box. Oh, exactly. Right. Exactly right. Yep. So, you know, I, and I think it's, it's things as simple as, you know, that change in motion and orientation and, and sort of just going, I'm not going to talk anymore about what I can change. I'm going to focus on what I can change and I'm going to figure out a motion that allows me to deliver and deliver and deliver and deliver. And, you know, there's much, Jim, and I'm sure you've had guests that have talked about agile development, right? And modern infrastructure. I've worked for some really interesting companies in the world outside of this industry that aren't as agile and as infrastructure elegant as people from the outside might think they are but they just don't take no for an answer, right? And you know, they have this attitude of we will succeed in spite of those limitations. You know, that's a leadership thing. And you know what we've been talking about? That's the difference between, in my mind, fintech companies and traditional financial institutions is that it's the mission that says, we're not going to take these things and put them in the same you know, block that we did before. We got to do it completely differently. That's a very good point. Yeah. So before you joined TD Bank, you were at Amazon. What do you think are the biggest differences between about how innovation digital engagement process works at a big tech firm compared to most traditional financial institutions? If you ask a consultant that, like what they're going to tell you, Jim, is, you know, agile development, infrastructure modernization, engineering prowess. And that's part of it for sure. But that's not the biggest difference that I see. The biggest difference I see is this concept 
of long-term thinking in innovation versus, you know, if you trade on a growth multiple, it frees you up as a company to do things on a very long-term financial horizon versus companies that trade on earnings multiples. Like, I got to hit next quarter. And that difference is more profound than I think people give credit to. The other difference is what I talked about earlier. What, what I see at those companies, Jim, is a customer backwards motion versus a tech forward motion. And that's kind of ironic when you think about some of the greatest technology companies in the world. They don't actually innovate off the tech. They innovate off of customer problems and they use tech as part of the solution. So it's that long-term thinking and customer backwards motion that I think were the biggest differences. It's interesting is you, you look at Amazon and because Bezos has announced he's going to step down, a lot of people are looking back to the beginning. And I believe that organization went almost a decade without making a dime and simply trying to build a customer base that can provide them learnings as to how do they build the best book company at that time. But then it got deployed across other products and services, obviously, and the rest is history. But it's, it's interesting. It's just the building of that organization alone. It wasn't built necessarily as a tech company. It was trying to solve a major issue with regard to how consumers consume books. And uh, it's interesting as you look back and, and realize that the, the focus was not on the short-term quarterly re- revenue. They just kept on reinventing themselves. So when you look at the future of banking and you look at, let's say, open banking and the integration of non-financial services as an opportunity for a bank like TD Bank, how do you see this playing out? I mean, without regard to regulation, because regulation can certainly play a big role, but do you see open banking going deeper into the embedding of financial services within a consumer's lifestyle as opposed to being a product play? I do if the market wants it, right? And what I mean by that is if you look at what happened in Europe, right, with open banking, GDPR, and some, you know, PSD2, and some of the other things that, that have occurred there in the last few years, you know, there's an element of, in that open concept, where there was a party thrown and nobody came, like early on, right? There's a lot of enablement work, and, and there's probably some well-meaning sort of motivation, but but I don't know yet that the market's demanding that. It, it doesn't feel like it's quite there. Now, complacency is devastating in life, is what I would say, right? Like, you know, rewind you know, the clock on the telco industry to 15 years ago, pre-smartphone, right? Like, right. remember when people actually picked their phone company, right? Then what happens you know, uh, tech comes along, sort of takes the top layer of the industry off. Now people decide their phone and iOS or Android. And yeah, there's a T-Mobile or a Verizon sitting in the background, right? Right, right. But, you know, and, and by the way, those companies are still profitable, regulated utilities, but the game really changed. Now, is concepts like open banking and other types of things going to change the game in financial services? Maybe, but I think what history's taught us, Jim, is you know, big seismic shifts at scale tend to take larger enterprises as new entrants into, you know, there's a PayPal, there's a Square, there's a Venmo out there once in a while. But then there's a lot of companies we've never heard of, right, as well. Right. So I think the combination of open data, scaled tech innovation, hardened payment rate, like there's probably some combination that looks very different in the future. I, you know, is it going to be is it going to be small fintech led? I don't know. Like history would say, 
maybe not. Like, but it, could it be big tech led? Maybe. Speaking of big tech led and speaking of competition, you know, obviously the marketplace is, is filled with competition right now, big and small, known and unknown. What do you personally see as the biggest competition for legacy financial institutions? And how is TD trying to differentiate itself against these players? I don't think the competition is what we've traditionally thought the competition is. You know, I think it's a very fair fight sort of inside the industry. And, and TD's got a long history of sort of winning in that fight, you know, through a very simple process of anticipating and meet, meeting customer needs, right, in a really elegant, convenient fashion. And we'll continue to do that when I think about the more existential threats to the, the industry, the things that could really signal a seismic shift. You know, as a former business GM in, in other industries, I, I think a lot about this concept of mathematical asymmetry, Jim. Because mathematical asymmetry is actually really predictive of what's going to happen in the future and what can happen. There are two places in banking where there's very significant mathematical asymmetry. One is in cyber risk. Yeah. Banks have to be right every day, all day, 24 hours a day in that space. The bad actors, whether individuals or state-sponsored, need to be right once in a blue moon. That's asymmetry. And that presents you know, a potential existential threat. The other is what I'll call business math asymmetry. And you know, I talked about big tech a little bit. Big tech, whether you're operating an app store or an AdWords search business or an e-com marketplace, those companies operate in models that where the margins are maybe 1,500 to 4,000 basis points, Jim. Banks, we operate on whether it's a transactional model and payments or a, a loan spread model or balance spread. We operate in like two to 200 basis points. That's asymmetry, right? And that's perpetual asymmetry. And, oh, by the way, we trade on earnings multiples. Right, yeah. And trade on growth multiples. So the asymmetry mathematically is actually compounded between big tech and financial services. What that means from a practical sense is there's a lot of things that they can do that they never have to monetize. Oh, yeah. Or, or they monetize in new ways. Yeah. You know, I used to kid people and say, geez, if Amazon decided that they wanted to offer $200 for you to open a checking account today, they can absorb that without the checking account having a part of that because they have enough revenue on each consumer and enough data that they can offer that. How do you compete against that in such a way where they're not actually becoming a bank, but they build a partnership, but the, the data available and all the insight available, they can take a little bit from here and put it here and we have no play back again. You know, it's a very interesting model. It really is. You know, if you're running a marketplace at 2,500 to 3,000 basis points and, and, and data makes it better, like you'll, do, you'll give a lot of things away to get that data. We'll see what that looks like in the future. I think in the near term, though, Jim, it, from a practical perspective, the best defense is a good offense. Like be proactive, meet the customer's needs, meet them at an individual level, not a peanut butter level. Yep. You know, that, that's going to go a long, long way. I think it's when you get complacent and let your guard down, and, and I don't think we are, that you're sort of inviting some of that asymmetry sort of in, and again, yeah. between political and legislative and other, we'll, we'll see how this one yeah. plays out over the next five to 10 years. 
Finally, I'm going to ask your perspective on something based on what you just said. And it, obviously, it's not an issue as much for the TD Bank that's already moving down that personalization pathway and, and doing quite well at it. But the partnership with Google with financial institutions, obviously, a Citibank, they don't have as much of a retail presence. So that makes a lot of sense for them that they can bring two major companies together and build a distribution network. But if you were, let's say you were managing a small or medium-sized financial institution and really felt you were unable to bring that level of personalization that, let's say, Google plays it out the way they think they're going to, is this a play that if you were heading up a mid-sized organization, you do that or are you making a deal with the devil without getting in too much trouble with that concept? <laughs> I won't respond to like a specific partnership, Google, you know, but let's just talk yeah. about the concept generally. Yeah. Look, there's probably a time and place for some organizations um, uh, to think about that. Exhaust your changing your how as a company before you change with whom, right? What I mean by that specifically is don't let your past constrain your view of what you can do in your future on your own. Like you, if you really embrace changing your how, I'd say take a shot at that first. And then if you really don't think it's going to work based on your size of organization or whatever other constraints, then yeah, you, you know, you always consider partnership. We do partnerships. We do partnerships in tech space. Yep. So, you know, the devil is in the details in that, but I don't want companies to sort of throw the white flag in prematurely, as it were. That is a great perspective because the reality is also, with or without the partnership, you still have legacy leadership to deal with. So you're not going to be able to optimize that partnership if you haven't changed your viewpoint. And if you change your viewpoint, to your point, there may be a better solution out there. That's not good or bad against Google. It's a great concept, and there's a lot of value there. The, the challenge, again, gets to be, you know, have you changed your organization and tested all options, especially in the marketplace, as you have found out with your, your, spend, your spend relationship with Movin, is that, you know, have we really tested out all options available to get to where we want to go, and sometimes not a build versus buy, but it's a partnership? Exactly. That's exactly it. You know, it's, it's really remarkable, Jim. And, and I've certainly seen this in my, my few years at TD. When you change your perspective on how you do things, it opens up possibilities that you really didn't see historically. And we're very, very excited about that journey and how we're going down that path at TD. And it'll take all forms, partnership and technology yeah. and John, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you about TD Bank, the winner of two years in a row, the best innovative bank in the in the business. And, and again, it's an environmental thing. And it's great talking with you and talking more about TD. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Jim. It's been great being here with you today. You know, it was great having a conversation with John Thomas from TD Bank. As I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, I'm very familiar with TD Bank with my time in Canada. And, and Canada's a different environment. There's a lot of focus, has been a lot of focus for decades on data analytics, the deployment of insights. And, uh, you know, the, the way this is being used in the innovation world as well, TD obviously is an organization that is ahead of the curve compared to a lot of other traditional financial institutions. But I think it gave a lot of insights to all sized organizations as to how can they do better with data analytics and moving forward to serve the digital needs of the consumer. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raised the top five banking podcast by Apple. I generally appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor over a year and a half ago. If you enjoy what we're doing, 
please be sure to subscribe to Bank and Transform on your favorite podcast app. In addition, take 30 to 45 seconds to show us some love in the form of a review. It means the world to me, but also it allows us to get more great guests like we do today. And check out my research we are doing on digital transformation, the future of banking, retail banking innovation, and the changing dynamics of financial marketing as part of the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, make every day a learning experience. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.